We're talking still about those who have received him. I believe all the way through this section, John the Baptist, the disciples, and in through chapter 4, in the end of chapter 4, I think we're talking about those who do receive him. I think we've got some evidence in other places of Scripture that there were those in the Sanhedrin, those who were religious leaders, and probably Nicodemus himself, who's the man who comes to Jesus at night here, who received him. And I believe that, I believe that Nicodemus does. We're not really given any testimony of that necessarily in the, in the Gospel of John. But I believe that Nicodemus received Jesus Christ as God after this conversation. But there were many in Jerusalem that believed on him, it says, because of the signs that he did. But he didn't entrust them, them to him because he, he knew what was in people. He wanted them not to just believe him for the signs. They want, he wanted them to receive him as God. Receive him for who he was. And so, so this, these are those people. This is one of those people, Nicodemus. It sets it up well for us because he actually, it mentions the signs in verse 23 and, it, and, and Nicodemus mentions it. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, was a Pharisee. But, um, but, prob- but a member of the Sanhedrin as a ruler of the Jews. Not every Pharisee was in the Sanhedrin, so Nicodemus was pretty high up on the totem pole. He, he ranked pretty high. He was a ruler. And, and he comes to Jesus by night. We don't really necessarily know why. We're not told why, but most people speculate, and I, I agree with them, that I think it was because of fear. That We're told in other places in the Gospels, that people fear, that, that many of the Jewish leaders feared to testify, to come out as believers of Jesus Christ because of fear of the Jews. They, they feared losing their place in the synagogue. They feared, in Nicodemus' case, I'm sure he probably feared losing his seat on the Sanhedrin. And, and, and in fear, he comes to Jesus by night, I believe. I, I'll, I'll admit I'm reading in a motive there. He says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. The signs idea comes in again. They, they had seen what Jesus could do. They recognized that Jesus was doing something different here. They recognized that Jesus was doing something that only God could do. So Jesus had to be sent from God. And, and so he says, we know you are a teacher come from God. We, I think the we there implies that he's speaking somewhat with the, the fact that they've discussed this before. Jesus has come up in conversations at the Sanhedrin before. And they're like, what are we going to do with this guy? He's doing signs that only a person sent from God can do. But he just kicked everybody out of the temple. All of our, all of our guys that were selling stuff in the temple just got kicked out. You know, this doesn't add up. We can't say he's from God and then because that means we're messing up. So he's trying to get to the bottom of this. And, but Jesus knows something, and I think this, this carries over from the end of chapter 2 too because it, it says Jesus knew, he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And you'll notice what Jesus says to, John the, or to Nicodemus here. Not what you would expect. Now, if somebody came up and said, hey, you know, Pastor Rory, you, you know, clearly, you know, you are a teacher that, you know, you're, God has blessed your ministry as a teacher, and, and you're, you're, you're explaining the Word of God well. I don't think my response to them would be, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. 
This is not, you know, that just doesn't fit the conversation. I'd be like, what? You know, like, where, where did that come from? Like, left field. You know, where? But, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew why Nicodemus was there. Jesus knew that Nicodemus really wanted to find out how to get into the kingdom of God. He knew that Nicodemus was searching for something here. He wasn't just coming out to compliment Jesus in the middle of the night. He wanted to know what was going on. And so Jesus cuts right to the chase. He knew what was in Nicodemus. He knew what Nicodemus wanted to know. And he said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is, this is core to what Jesus is going to teach here in these verses and, and important. We need to talk about what it means to be born again. We need to, we need to grasp this because unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God either. No one in this room who is, never, who, who, who is never born again will see the kingdom of God. And so we, we need to talk about this, and, and, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it because I think it's an important thing that we need to talk about. We need to, we need to address. You know, I, I think the reason why is because we, we all have this inflated sense of our own goodness, don't we? It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where you come from, even if you're a Christian, which to be a Christian requires you to admit your own sinfulness. If you're really honest with yourself, if, or maybe I should say if you're anything like me, you still have an inflated sense. You still struggle with this to keep your, good, your own idea, your ideas of your own goodness in check. You know, sometimes I get, I get I'm like, well, I'm, at least I'm better than that guy, Right? You know, we, we compare ourselves, and they're like, yeah, I, I got that guy beat, so I, I'm doing good, you know. Or, uh, or maybe it's, um, you know, that we, we just, you know, we, we just think, I've, I've got it all together. My life's under control. You know, I've, I've seen a couple of examples of this in, my, in recent months that, it, that really just jumped out at me in, in our culture in general. And I wanted to, to reference them just as an example of how this... Uh, this takes place in our world. This is such so common for us to think this. I was, I was uh, browsing CNN.com the other day, and uh, an article caught my eye. This is the title. I like weed, and I'm a good person. Pot smokers fight stereotypes. This, this is some of the things that, that it said. Lighting up a freshly packed pipe is just the kind of afternoon delight I reporter Robcat20 likes after dealing with a stressful day at work as an insurance agent. Usually he'll put on a movie from Netflix while enjoying a good smoke from Stella, his pipe. He smokes pot. He has to name his pipe. There's just one problem. Smoking marijuana is illegal in his state of Ohio. Robcat20, who asked not to be identified by name because he fears being labeled as a bad person, his language, in his small town, says it's time that changed. This is, this is his quote. This is what he said. I like weed, and I'm a good person. I'm a successful businessman, a loving father, devoted husband, registered Republican, active in my community with charities, church, and I give piano lessons in the evenings to children with disabilities. He is a good guy. He is a good person. All those things that he does, that guy's good. Farmer 808, another guy that doesn't want to identify himself except by his screen name, said this. 
I'm a high-performing, innovative overachiever who uses marijuana to relax after a hard day's work, he said. I have two college degrees and over a dozen patents in computer science. Like any habit, abuse leads to problems, but properly used in moderation, I feel moder marijuana is a boon to society. And I, and I mean, I, the whole marijuana thing aside, right, that's really not why I bring this up. Did you, did you catch what those guys think about themselves? There is no lack of self-esteem there, ironically, in our world that thinks we need to build up people's self-esteem. There is no lack of thinking that they're good. I like weed and I'm a good person. I can smoke marijuana and still be good. In fact, I can do whatever I want and still be good is really what our society would have us think, at least in most cases. Not quite anything, of course. You know, I mean, if you, you know, if, if you, if you cut me off at a stoplight, you cease to be a good person. Um, if you threaten my family, you cease to be a good person. You steal anything from me, you cease to be a good person. You know, but other than that, everybody is pretty much good. Right? Can I, let me reference another cultural phenomenon that, that we witnessed personally in our community recently. On my birthday in November, I spent part of the evening at uh, the, the courthouse at a massive city council meeting that uh, was called in order to talk about whether or not we should change the housing ordinance to include a phrase about transgender people. And again, I'm not, I don't really want to get to that issue, but let me, let me I, I, I was walking into this meeting and, and there's signs that were strewn on the, the ground that, I don't know why, but I mean to, to communicate obviously to people as they're coming in. I suppose to try to change the minds of those that were against, or that were, yeah, against this, this ordinance being passed. These were the signs that I read. Parts, not parts. And it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Right? I mean, I'm a good person. I might be transgender, but I'm good on the inside. Or, I, you know what, I'm really, I've, I've, I do good things for people, so don't define me by my, my biological gender parts. Or, you know, it's all about your heart and not your parts. So, you know, that, so that's, you know, that's the big deal here. This is what we need to worry about. This is what we need to be concerned about. Because why? Because they're just essentially good people, right? I mean, and, and this was repeated as I was there. You know, I know, this, these are the testimonies of those who were for the ordinance being passed. I know transgender people, and they're good. There's no reason to be afraid of them. All you people are just afraid of these people. And I mean, that's debatable, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is, is that that was their point. They're good people. They should have the, this wording in the ordinance because transgender people are good people. And whether or not you know, they're good citizens is one thing. But I'm going to tell you something right now. None of them are good people. Not in the biblical sense of the term good people. And neither is this person who smokes marijuana as a loving father, devoted husband, and registered Republican. And neither am I as the, as, as the associate pastor of Trinity Baptist Church. I'm not. There's not a good person that's ever walked this planet but one. And you know his name because you, read, you heard about how, he, how good he was this morning in, in church. 
There's nobody good. Read Romans chapter 3. You need to, if you need it to be rammed into your head again, Romans chapter 3 will get it done. It's pretty blunt. There is none good. No, not one. It doesn't matter how much pot you smoke or how registered you are as a Republican or how we should judge you by your heart. No, it doesn't matter. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. And because of our inherent sinfulness, we tend to justify ourselves. In fact, that is exactly the problem that Pharisees had in the Bible. And here's Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a self-justifier coming to Jesus and asking, how can I get into the kingdom of God? You must be born again. You must be born again. What we do is we deny, we either deny our sinfulness with excuses. We make excuses about why it's not my fault. It's, you know, it, it's all this society on me. It's just bearing down. If my boss wasn't such a jerk, I'd do what he wanted me to do. You know, if my dad didn't yell at me so much, I would totally obey all the time. It's just that my mom and dad demand too much out of me. Right? I mean, don't we make excuses like that? We make excuses or we contrast ourselves with others that we deem to be worse than us to make ourselves look good. This is our plan. Because we're, because we're deluded, quite frankly. We think we're good. We're not. But I propose to you that we must confess our sinfulness. We must admit our sinfulness. Our brokenness. Just how not good we are in order to be born again and see the kingdom of God. And I think that this is implied in the truth of being born again. If you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God, you are not good. That, I think, is the point of what Jesus is trying to get across to Nicodemus. Here comes Nicodemus, Pharisee, ruler, I mean top Pharisee, top notch in the Sanhedrin Pharisee. He is a good guy by Pharisee standards. He is a good guy by Jewish standards. He keeps all the rules. I mean, I think we could read off that list of things here. Successful businessman, loving father, devoted husband, registered Republican, active in my community with charities, church, and giving piano lessons in the evenings to children with disabilities. I bet he was even doing that. Even the piano lessons part. Probably invented the piano. That's how good he was. The fact of the matter is, he was the good guy of good guys. He was probably Saul's best friend. That is the Apostle Paul's best friend. As they ruled together in the Sanhedrin. But the fact is, is that Jesus had to get something through to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're missing something here. You're not good enough to enter the kingdom of God. That's what Nicodemus needed to get. Because if Nicodemus went on thinking that he was good enough to get into the kingdom of God, he was no, going to get nowhere close to the kingdom of God. And this is, this is something that, that is characteristic of the message of Jesus Christ, I think, throughout his ministry, and you can read it in other Gospels. I think it's, I think it's pretty obvious in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew that, that pastor's preaching through too. So we're gonna, you're probably going to get this message again in the near future. But I don't think we can hear it enough. You're not good enough to enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness is as good as God's. Measure up? How you doing on that? How you doing on perfection, everybody? Nope. You're failing miserably. 
And that is why we must, re- we must admit our own sinfulness. And so Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus here reveals two truths about the new, ver- new birth that reveal our sinfulness and prevent, that prevent, and prevent us from being born again. That is the, the, um, that the sinful, how our sinfulness prevents us from being born again. And it's the very nature of the new birth itself that reveals these things. And so let's, let's look at this. Let's look at what Jesus says here to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is shocked by this statement of Jesus Christ that you must be born again. Right? And he says this. That doesn't make sense, Jesus. It's essentially what he's saying. One of the commentators that I read said that, that, that Nicodemus couldn't have been more rude and and in the way that he and, and disrespectful in the way that he that he answers Jesus. What? Are you telling me I have to get back in my mother's womb a second time to be born? How can that even happen? Are you crazy? That's essentially what he's at what he's saying to Jesus. And so Jesus explains what it means to be born again in verses five through eight, and this is the core of what I want to focus on this evening. Jesus answers truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. First of all, what Jesus focuses on here is that the new birth and, and this is the first aspect of the new birth, the first aspect of its nature. The new birth follows our physical birth. And that aspect of the nature of the new birth means that you must be a sinner. Because if you're born of the flesh, you're flesh. That's what he says here, right? Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Jesus makes another statement, which I believe points to the same thing in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've got to talk about this phrase just for a second. I don't want to get into a big theological debate here, but, I, but there's a lot writing on this phrase in verse 5. And there's, I've always interpreted born of water to mean physical birth. And, uh, and I think it's plain. I guess I, I don't know if somebody taught me that. I don't remember. Someone may have taught me that somewhere along the line. But that's the way I've just always interpreted it. And I, I don't know if it's just from the plain reading or if it's some, something that someone taught me. But as I'm, I was reading through commentaries, there's, a, there's, there, there are, there's at least three options here. And one of them is physical birth that he's talking about when he talks about water. The other is that it might be pointing to purification rituals in the Old Testament, that you need to be purified by God and so that's like born of, the, of water and then born of the Spirit. So it's talking about a spiritual purification. The other option is that of, re, of baptism. That, uh, and I think it's a little scary to me to see baptism here. First of all, I think there's some problems with that view. First of all, then you're saved because you're baptized. And I have a problem with that. Um, I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. I don't believe you can be saved by being baptized. It is not what regenerates you, contra Calvin, from his commentary, which he basically says. Um, And the other problem that I have here is that why in the world would Jesus bring up a church ordinance 
to a Jewish leader. I mean, it's, it's not like baptism is talked about throughout the Old Testament. Like, you know, you need to get baptized, you need to get baptized, you need to get baptized. It's not there. And so Jesus is talking at the beginning of his ministry, it seems, assuming that John is written in chronological order, at the beginning of his ministry, he's talking to Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, and he says, you know, there's going to be this church ordinance someday that once you get that, then you're good. Then you're, you know, you'll be born of water and the Spirit then. And then you'll be in good shape. But until then, you're going to have to hold off at least three years. Because that isn't going to happen until I die and rise, and then it's Pentecost and there's going to be tongues. It's going to be a great day. But you just got to wait. You know, just hang on, hold your horses. Then you'll be able to be regenerated. I, I just can't see that happening. Why would he say that to him? I, I can't see how this could be pointing to that. Now, most people, most commentators that I read would have taken the other view that of the, the Old Testament. They would have pointed to the fact he's a Jewish leader. This is what he would have naturally thought of. When he was talking about it, he would have turned to a passage like Ezekiel 26, which I think it was 26, either that or 36, where, where, where in Ezekiel um, there's a washing with water that is connected with the new birth in Judaism, in, in the promises for the Jews. I, I, I suppose that could be, I, I, would, I guess I would have a little bit more lenience for that view, but I still don't think that it, it, I think that it just makes sense based on what Nicodemus has just said and what Jesus is saying. Notice what Nicodemus has just asked. Can I get back into my mom's womb and be born again? And he, he, he thinks Jesus is talking about physical birth. And he's like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. Unless you're born of water, unless you're physically born and spiritually born, you can't see the kingdom of God. I mean, and, and, and maybe this should be like, well, duh, it goes without saying that you have to be alive one time. You have to be born physically in order to be born spiritually. But I think that Jesus is just hitting on what he just talked about. No, it's not, I'm not talking about that physical birth. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. And, the, and, and Jesus builds on that, right? In verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He brings up physical birth again in verse 6. So when I look at this phrase, I see it surrounded by physical birth. To me, it seems pretty plain that what Jesus is talking about here is physical birth. And so the physical birth precedes the spiritual birth. You first of all have to be alive. Now let me tell you that what, what, what happened when you were born? I mean, I'm not going to go into... Not the hospital room. I mean spiritually. You are all descendants of Adam and Eve. We all trace our ancestry back to him and her. No, that's a little disappointing for some of us. That means we're related to others of us. But the fact is that we're all related eventually. The fact of the matter is, is that because you were born of Adam, read Romans chapter 5. Through Adam came death. And you were born into that death. Through one man's sin came into the world, and death by sin. Therefore death reigned upon all men, for all have sinned. That's, that's you. Because you have to be physically born, because you, before you can be spiritually born, 
you're in bad, bad shape. You are naturally bent towards sin and you know it. And if you don't, hang out with sweet, innocent-looking little babies for a while. I mean, for those of us who have been parents and those of you who've seen babies grow up, that would pretty much include all of us, you know. I did not have to teach my sons to talk back to me. And I wouldn't. I mean, that makes my life a whole lot harder when they do. I didn't have to teach my sons to do what they, or, or Savannah for that matter, to do what they wanted to do when they want to do it. They just naturally do it. It's come extremely natural to my children. In fact, so natural that it scares me. And it just tells me how bad I am that, that I have produced these demonic offspring. Sorry, guys. They're not really that bad. They can be, but they're not always. But the fact is, is that they are bad. And I mean, don't, don't go around telling my kids they're good because they're going to grow up with a Nicodemus complex then. And they're not going to recognize that they need to be born again. They're not good. I do not have good kids. I have sinful, born into sin, born into death kids. And they prove it every day, it seems like. And you do too. You're messed up. And there, I mean, there's even more proof of it in the world around us. There's people dying all the time. Why? Because there's sin here. It just makes sense. Why do seemingly good people die? Why do innocent little children die? Why, do we have, why, why does my mom have an occupation working with severely handicapped children? It's because of sin. This whole world is messed up because of sin. We just had a funeral in this church this week. Somebody else died. Another person fell victim to sin. And it's the destiny of all of us. You know it. It doesn't matter how much vegan you eat. It doesn't matter how many times you go to the doctor. It doesn't matter how many vitamins you take. It doesn't matter what you do to yourself. I don't care about your gym membership or anything else. You're gonna die. Someday. It's because of sin. And the fact that we are alive, that we were born physically, proves that we are sinners. And it proves that we need to be born again. And by its very nature that the new birth follows our physical birth, that you have to be born of water and the Spirit, proves that you're a sinner. God needs to do something to your heart. And the second aspect the second realization about the new birth or aspect of the new birth that reveals how sinful we are is that the new birth flows from the Spirit. And this seems to be really the heart of what Jesus is trying to say. You have to be born of the Spirit, he says in verse 5. In verse 6, he says, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. 
Not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is really awesome. I, I, I don't know, you know, it, the, whether, I don't know if I want to necessarily get in the debate of whether it was, uh, you know, this, this is a direct quote of what Jesus said or if it's John getting the gist of what Jesus was saying here. I know that this is what God wanted written down and this is beautiful. There's this great play on words in here if you're Greek. He essentially uses the same word over and over again in here. Whenever you see the word spirit or wind, it's the same Greek word. And I was like, you know, that, that, that makes it a little harder to you know, figure out what he's saying if you're not Greek. <laughs> but the fact is, is that that's what he's saying. You know, whenever the same word for wind and spirit exists here. And he's just playing on those words. You know, you, you want to be born of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit's just like the wind. It's like you need to be born of the wind, which is just like the wind. And, but the idea of the Spirit had this, I mean, I, I think it's clear, I think it's well translated in our English translations. I think we get the gist of what's being said here, but it's just beautiful the way it's said. And, it, and the focus of it being on, on the Spirit, how this is, all comes from the Spirit. So because it flows from the Spirit, it is of the Spirit. That means the Spirit comes inside of you and gives you spiritual life. What this assumes is that there is some spiritual death. You're a sinner. You're messed up. You're broken. And you're spiritually dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You hath He made alive in His Spirit. Right? We were by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're saved, it says in Titus. You see, that Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon your sinful deadness and brings you to life. When a person gets saved, there's a resurrection that's happened. A dead person has come to life, dead in their sins, alive to God. That's why baptism is so important, because it pictures that. You're getting buried, and you're coming back up out of the water like you're raised to new life, is what Paul talks about in Romans 6. And this is what the Spirit does. The, the new birth is of the Spirit of God. It is God's work. And, and by the way, it's also not of your will, which all, the, all of verse 8 is saying to you, or what it should say is, you can't conjure this up on your own. You can't sit at your house and just... Make yourself come spiritually alive. It doesn't happen that way. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. You don't make the wind come. You don't know where it comes from. You don't control it. You don't know where it's going. You, you can just identify that it's there. So there's two important truths about the new birth that we see there, right? The first is, it's, it's not you that makes the new birth happen. It's all of God, which means that you're a sinner and God is perfect and he can do awesome things in dead, rotten, worthless sinners. This is the glory of God. The majesty of the, of the regenerating power of Jesus Christ and the Spirit. That's what's going on in the new birth. And the second thing is, is that if you truly are born again, there's going to be some evidence that it's happened. 
You know when the wind comes. You might not be in control of it. You might not know where it comes from or where it's going, but you know it's there. Remember a couple weeks ago, polar vortex? Did you know the wind was there? Yeah. Yeah, it was there. It stung. It was so there. When the Spirit is there, you know it. Something happens. When that new life happens, there's a change that takes place. You are a different person. You can't act the same. You can't talk the same. You can't do the same things. You can't react the same way to things. Something is different when the Spirit gives life. There's evidence of its reality. So, are you born again? That's the question that we all have to answer. And I know many of you can answer with a strong affirmative. Praise God. The question still remains that we all have to contemplate. You, have you come to grips with your own sinfulness? Are you trying to pretend like you don't have any problems? I mean, you just say, well, I mean, at least I, at least I go to church every week. I mean, my neighbor, those bums, I mean, they're lucky to get out of their house on Christmas and Easter. You know, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Well, I, I am a registered Republican. I'm a loving father, a devoted husband. I mean, I help out with charities. I give to the church and other charities. Sometimes I even teach disabled people piano. Is that your goodness? You're like, hey, don't don't focus on, you know, it's it's not about it's not about the parts. It's about the hearts. Is that you? Is that your mentality? You know, like, whoa, hey, you know, let's you know that. You know, I, 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 I'm good. I'm doing all right. Because if that is your mentality, the rebirth, being born again, it's worthless to you. Like it doesn't even exist. Or maybe, maybe more commonly for us, rather than just comparing ourselves to other people, it's, it's just making excuses. But, but, but I, I. But I, it, it's not, but I, I mean, if it wasn't for this problem, I'd be doing fine. You know, if, if it wasn't for those, if it wasn't for my wife, I mean, man, she can just nag and nag and nag. And it's just like, I mean, you just, I mean, sometimes you just, you can only take it for so long. My wife is not a nag. I said to clarify, I was not talking personally. No, they, I mean, is that what you do? Is that, I mean, that's, that's what we tend to do, isn't it? Make excuses for ourselves. Like, well, if, if, if my wife would do this or my kids would do that or my, my dad and mom would do this or my boss would do this or, you know, if, if, if things were a little bit different. You know, if, well, if I didn't have all these bills to pay, you know, then I would give to the church. 
whatever. You know, I mean, like, I could, you know, we've just got constant excuses for why we're not, you know, why we should be excluded from having to be good or perfect, I mean. No, it, it, you know, there's no excuse. There's no comparison. You want to compare yourself to someone, compare yourself to Jesus, and you'll get a pretty good, clear picture of what you're like, and then you'll run to him for help. That's what David did. Well, I actually don't know if it was David or not. Whoever wrote Psalm 119 did that. I've been trying to memorize parts of Psalm 119, and the first stand, the first, uh, I think the first stanza of Psalm 119 is important to what we're talking about tonight. And so I'm going to quote that, and then we'll, then we'll be uh, dismissed. Or we'll pray. This is what it says in Psalm 119. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Okay, so up till this point, you should probably all be saying, uh-oh, don't think I fit that category yet. And this is the response of the psalmist. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me.